Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, millions of Americans lose their minds over unproven accusations against Russia, and civil liberties groups, the ACLU and CARE, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the Council on American-Islamic Relations push the absurd idea that the 2003, until now, war on Iraq has been fought to protect the U.S. Bill of Rights. First, allegations against Russia are less credible every day. The U.S. government has now generated numerous news stories and released multiple reports aimed at persuading us that Vladimir Putin is to blame for Donald Trump becoming president. U.S. media has dutifully informed us that the case has been made. What has been made is the case for writing your own news coverage. The reports from the so-called intelligence community are no lengthier than the New York Times and Washington Post articles about them. Why not just read the reports and cut out the middle person? The New York Times calls the latest report, quote, damning and surprisingly detailed, before later admitting in the same so-called news article that the report, quote, contained no information about how the agencies had collected their data or had come to their conclusions, end quote. A quick glance at the report itself would have made clear to you that it did not pretend to present a shred of evidence that Russia hacked emails or served as a source for WikiLeaks. Yet Congresswoman Barbara Lee declared the evidence in this evidence-free report overwhelming. What should progressives believe? The best Congresswoman we've got? Or our own lying eyes? Supposedly the evidence has been made public and is overwhelming, but try to find it and you'll come up dry. Ask why and you'll be told that of course the evidence cannot be made public as that would risk revealing how the U.S. government came upon the information. Yet, that same government feeds the U.S. media with the story that it intercepted communications of top Russian officials just after the U.S. election celebrating Trump's victory. Did that story not run that risk? The U.S. government feeds the U.S. media, specifically the so-called free press of the Washington Post, whose owner makes more money from the CIA than from the Washington Post, that Russia has hacked Vermont's electrical supply. And because this was a claim that could be checked by an independent party, namely Vermont's electrical supply, the secret methods of the CIA quickly turned out to be these. They had simply made the thing up. If you read the reports that the U.S. government releases and understand that the term assess is a synonym for to claim without evidence, it will very quickly become clear that reports on Russians' motives for the alleged crimes as well as for their non-criminal public actions, such as running a television network, are purely guesses. It also becomes clear that the U.S. government is not even claiming to have any evidence that Russia was a source for WikiLeaks. And with a bit of help, it should become evident to anyone that the U.S. government is not claiming to have any actual evidence of the Russian government hacking Democratic emails. Even the NSA will commit only to, quote, moderate confidence in what millions of Democrats will now stake their lives and potentially everybody else's on. Former top NSA expert on this stuff, William Binney, swears the claims are utter nonsense. IP addresses produced as supposed evidence turn out in many cases to have nothing to do with Russia at all, much less the Russian government. When the 17 intelligence organizations put their collective multi-billion dollar brains together and report on anything that's publicly available, they tend to get it wrong. 
The facts about Russia's television network in this latest so-called report misidentify personnel, describe old programs as new ones, and screw up dates by failing to recognize that in some parts of the world people list the day before the month. Yet we are supposed to believe that anything they say about topics not publicly available must be true, despite having proved false over and over again for decades. WikiLeaks, which never claimed Iraq had WMDs, never alleged Gaddafi was about to commit a massacre, never sent missiles from drones into a single wedding or hospital, never concocted tales of babies taken from incubators, never screwed up its claims regarding chemical weapons attacks or the shooting down of airplanes, and in fact has never, as far as we know, tried to lie it to us at all, says Russia was not its source. Julian Assange clearly does not think Russia used someone else to pass information to him. He could be wrong. But Craig Murray, a diplomat with a stellar reputation for honesty, claims to know at least one source and to place them in either the NSA or the Democratic Party. Of course, having a plausible alternative account is not necessary to recognize that the U.S. government has no evidence to support its account. But the fact is that Murray's and numerous other scenarios are perfectly plausible. One ought to await evidence before declaring one of them fact. But we can go ahead and declare the CIA's story less and less likely with each passing day. NSA whistleblowers like Binney believe that if this story were true, the NSA would have evidence of it. It is safe to assume that if the NSA had evidence of it, some outline of that evidence would have been made public by now, rather than all the fluff, nonsense, and incompetent false attributions of IP addresses to Russia, etc., as each new perfumed pig of a report is released in Friday evening news dumps, we can advance ever closer to, to declaring that while the Russian government has indeed done far worse things, it did not do this. In fact, the latest report doesn't just produce no evidence of hacking and providing to WikiLeaks, it also tries to change the subject to things Russia openly and publicly did that nobody disputes, but that the so-called intelligence agencies still managed to screw up all the details on. I once, no kidding, invited a former CIA agent to speak at an event on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and the guy was late because he was unable to find it. The accusations against Russia in the latest overwhelming report include favoring proposals to work with Russia over proposals to build hostility, shocking, and running a television network that many people in the United States choose to watch, the outrage, how capitalistic, and, in the, tele and, and the television network is accused of cheering for Trump's election as if the British media wouldn't have cheered for Clinton's, as if the U.S. media doesn't cheer for election winners abroad all the time. This network, RT, is also accused of covering third-party candidates, fracking, Occupy, vote suppression, flaws in the U.S. election system, and other forbidden topics. Well, why do you think people watch it? If the U.S. media gave good time to third-party candidates, would people have to turn elsewhere to learn about them? If the U.S. media could be trusted not to claim a U.S. government report was damning in the same article that would later admit it was devoid of evidence, would people in the U.S. search for alternative sources of information? If the U.S. media allowed honest reporting on Occupy or fracking, if it opened itself up to a wide range of points of view and debate, if it allowed serious criticism of U.S. government policies supported by both big parties, would people despise it the way they do? 
Would people cheer when a fascist buffoon like Trump denounces the media? Isn't the U.S. media's awfulness, combined with the incredible free airtime it gave Trump, a fair target of blame for his becoming president? When I go on RT and suggest that the United States should end all its wars, and that Russia should too, I'm invited back on. The last U.S. network to have me on was MSNBC, and I opposed U.S. war making and was never heard from again. Perhaps most people watching U.S. media don't quite realize that there are no anti-war voices allowed, no voices that actually want to abolish war. Yet most people feel there is something missing on this and most topics. There's lots of supposed debate on U.S. media, yet a dim or glaring awareness among viewers and readers that the debate is severely limited. Here is an example close to hand. Whoever revealed to the U.S. public additional evidence that the Democratic Party had slanted its primary against Bernie Sanders did us all a favor. Those who still wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton, which was clearly most, if not all, the people who did before, could still do so. But anyone who approved of Hillary Clinton's disastrous decades-long record and yet objected to the unfair primary could choose not to vote for her. An informed public is a more democratic one, not less. Whoever informed us aided our democracy. They didn't damage it. And whoever informed us was not themselves responsible for rigging the primary against Sanders. That was the Democratic Party. But this point of view is neither permitted in the U.S. media nor consciously missed, because the topic has been focused on who done it, rather than what did they do. A second example is this. Those in the U.S. government pushing for greater cold, if not hot, war with Russia, with increased desperation during these next two weeks, will be benefiting weapons profiteers, and perhaps news profiteers. But just about nobody else while risking incredible death and destruction. If I were a so-called intelligence agency, I would assess with high confidence that corruption was afoot, and I'd get 16 friends to join me in calling that assessment a report if it helped you take it seriously. These fantasies about Russia could be dooming opposition to Donald Trump. To many Democrats for whom killing a million people in Iraq just didn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense, and who considered Obama's bombing of eight nations and the creation of the drone murder program to be praiseworthy, Trump will be impeachable on day one. Indeed, Trump should be impeached on day one, but the same Democrats who found the one nominee who could lose to Trump will find the one argument for impeachment that can explode in their own faces. Here's a, quote, progressive Democrat. Quote, in his dalliance with Vladimir Putin, Trump's actions are skirting treason by undermining further investigation or sanctions against the Russian manipulation of the 2016 election. Trump, as president, would be giving aid and comfort to Russian interference with American democracy, end quote. There's a bit of a nod there in the word investigations to the lack of any evidence that Russia manipulated any U.S. election. Yet that manipulation is stated as fact, and a failure to support further sanctions as punishment for it becomes aid and comfort. What level of punishment exactly constitutes the absence of aid and comfort? And how does that level of punishment compare with the level likely to produce war or nuclear holocaust? Who knows? Failure to sufficiently punish a foreign government, even for an actual proven offense, 
has never been a high crime and misdemeanor until this column I quoted from, which was by Robert Kuttner. The United States is in fact bound by the Hague Convention of 1899, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, and the United Nations Charter to take any such dispute to arbitration and to settle it by Pacific means. But that would require producing some evidence rather than mere allegations. Lawless, quote-unquote, punishment is much easier. But further evidence can emerge to counter the claim. The lack of evidence for the claim can weigh ever more heavily on public opinion and the dangers of creating further hostility with Russia can enter the consciousness of additional people. Meanwhile, we have a man planning to be president later this month whose business dealings clearly violate the U.S. Constitution in terms of not only, but also for, of not only foreign, but also domestic corruption. That's a perfectly overwhelming case for impeachment and removal from office that doesn't require opposing a single incident of mass murder or offending a single Pentagon contractor. Beyond that, Trump is becoming president after Election Day intimidation, after the partisan-based removal of voters from the rolls, and opposition to attempting to count paper ballots where they existed. He's arriving with the stated policies of unconstitutionally discriminating against Muslims, murdering families, stealing oil, torturing, and proliferating nuclear weapons. In other words, Donald Trump will be from day one an impeachable president, and Democrats will have already spent months building their campaign around the one thing that won't work. Imagine what will happen after all their hearings and press conferences, when their supporters find out that they aren't even accusing Vladimir Putin of hacking into election machines, that in fact they are accusing unknown individuals of hacking into Democrats' emails, and that they are then vaguely speculating that those individuals could have been sources for WikiLeaks, thereby informing the U.S. public of what was quite obvious and ought to have been widely reported for the good of the U.S. government, namely that the DNC rigged its primary. By the time the Democrats beat themselves to the floor with this charade, more facts will likely have come out regarding WikiLeaks' actual source or sources, and more hostility will likely have been stirred up with Russia. The war hawks have already got Trump talking up nuclear escalation. Luckily, there is an ace in the hole. There is something else that Democrats will be eager to hold Trump accountable for, and give Trump a month, and he'll likely produce it. I'm referring, of course, to that greatest fear of our beloved Founding Fathers, the ultimate high crime and misdemeanor, the presidential sex scandal. Turning now to the ACLU and CARE, two significant civil liberties organizations in the United States who on the same recent day used a spokesman, a gold star father, a man whose son had died in the war on Iraq, from here in Charlottesville, Virginia, used him to claim that war on Iraq was for the Bill of Rights. Are you old enough to remember when liberal groups openly admitted that the war on Iraq was illegal and fraudulent based on oil and profit and sadism? Well, can you recall when the proponents of the war claimed it was a defense against non-existent ties to terrorists and non-existent weapons? Even if you've wiped those memories clean, let me assure you, Nobody ever claimed that attacking and destroying Iraq was necessary to protect civil liberties in the United States, which have been seriously eroded during the course of that war. 
Yet, in recent months, the generic defense of murdering large numbers of people far away has taken over as the explanation for the war on Iraq. The ACLU, on a recent Friday, used the voice of my fellow Charlottesvillian, Kizer Khan, to claim that attacking Iraq was done, quote, in defense of our country's ideals. You can see an image of their email on my website at davidswanson.org. And of this one, also on the same Friday. CARE, which I can recall supporting Denis Kucinich for president because he opposed the war, claimed, also through the voice of Khan, that Iraq was destroyed, quote, to continue to have the freedoms guaranteed in the pages of our Constitution. Care even suggested that participating in such activities as attacking Iraq, which killed over a million people, see warisacrime.org slash Iraq for details, is a duty of American Muslims, and presumably everybody else. Is it possible that civil liberties groups do not know that war is the primary source of violations and restrictions on civil liberties? We are often told that wars are fought for, quote, freedom. But when a wealthy nation fights a war against a poor, if often resource-rich, nation halfway around the globe, among the goals is not actually to prevent that poor nation from taking over the wealthy one, after which it might restrict people's rights and liberties. The fears used to build support for the wars don't involve such an incredible scenario at all. Rather, the threat is depicted as one to safety, not liberty. Those people are going to blow us up, not limit our rights in court or restrict our public demonstrations to fenced-in pens where they can't be seen. We're going to have to do those things to ourselves. Sometimes we're told that evil people are going to blow us up because they hate our freedoms. But then that would still mean we were fighting a war for survival, not for freedom, if there were any truth to this absurd propaganda, which there is not. People can be motivated to fight by all kinds of means, including religion, racism, or hatred of a culture, but the underlying motivation for anti-U.S. violence from nations where the U.S. funds and arms dictators or maintains a large troop presence or imposes deadly economic sanctions or bombs houses or occupies towns or buzzes drones overhead is those actions. Many nations equal or surpass the United States in civil liberties without making themselves targets. What happens, predictably and consistently, is just the reverse of wars protecting freedoms. In close proportion to levels of military spending, liberties are restricted in the name of war, even while wars may simultaneously be waged in the name of liberty. We try to resist the erosion of liberties, the warrantless surveillance, the drones in the skies, the lawless imprisonment, the torture, the assassinations, the denial of a lawyer, the denial of access to information on the government, etc. But these are symptoms. The disease is war and the preparation for war. It is the idea of the enemy that allows government secrecy. It is the idea of war that most effectively concentrates government power in fewer hands and expands that power at the expense of the people. Only by restricting, reducing, and eliminating military spending can we restrict, reduce, or eliminate war. And only by restricting, reducing, or eliminating war can we do the same to this erosion of rights and liberties. The nature of war as fought between valued and devalued people facilitates the erosion of liberties in another way, in addition to the fear for safety. That is, it allows liberties to first be taken away from devalued people, 
but the programs developed to accomplish that are later predictably expanded to include valued people as well. First, foreigners are imprisoned, tortured, assassinated, or hunted by drone. Then people in one's own country are targeted as well, accused of having joined the enemy. They may be stripped of their citizenship in the UK version, or their citizenship stripped of all rights or privileges in the US version. But come home to roost, the abuses of wartime will, and there they will remain, even beyond the termination of wartime, should that termination ever arrive. Militarism erodes not just particular rights, but the very basis of self-governance. It privatizes public goods. It corrupts public servants. It creates momentum for war by making people's careers dependent on it. Over a half century ago, U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower warned, quote, We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. End quote. War not only shifts power to the government and the few and away from the people, but it also shifts power to a president or prime minister and away from a legislature or judiciary. James Madison, father of the U.S. Constitution, warned, quote, Of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded, because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debts and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. In war, too, the discretionary power of the executive is extended. Its influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied, and all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. The same malignant aspect in republicanism may be traced in the inequality of fortunes and the opportunities of fraud growing out of a state of war and in the degeneracy of manners and of morals engendered by both. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. The Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It has accordingly, with studied care, vested the question of war in the legislature. End quote. <laughs> Once upon a time. One way in which war erodes public trusts and morals is by its predictable generation of public lies. Makers of war hide every merit in their enemies and every flaw in themselves. They disguise the aim of profit or vengeance or lust for power as the aim of defense or philanthropy. And these lies may last long enough to start a war, but often do not last much beyond that, the truth of the matter tending to be very clearly exposed. Also eroded, of course, is the very idea of the rule of law, replaced 
with the practice of might makes right. Laws against war and other laws and rules and standards are brushed aside in the madness of war, which sets an example of lawlessness for all to follow. A young man was tortured in Chicago this past week. It wasn't an act of the Chicago police. It was live-streamed on Facebook, and the President of the United States declared it a horrific hate crime. The President did not advise looking forward rather than enforcing the law, nor did he hold open the possibility that the crime might have served some higher purpose. In fact, he didn't excuse the crime in any way that might help recommend it for imitation by others. Yet this same president has forbidden the prosecution of U.S. government torturers for the past eight years and has now seen fit to keep a four-year-old Senate report on their torture secret for at least 12 years more. Some people in the United States would maintain that environmental and climate policy should be based on facts. Some other people, there's very little overlap between the two groups, would tell you that U.S. policy toward Russia should be based on proven facts. Yet, here we are readily accepting that U.S. torture policy will be based on burying the facts. The primary author of the Senate Torture Report, Dianne Feinstein, calls it, quote, a total expose of the ineffectiveness of torture. Yet here comes President Trump openly promising to engage in torture because of its effectiveness, morality and legality be damned, and both Obama and Feinstein are content to leave the report hidden. That is to say, Feinstein insists it should be made public now, but she is not herself taking the step of making it public. Yes, although the U.S. Constitution makes the Congress the most powerful branch of government, centuries of imperial empowerment has persuaded pretty much everyone that a president can censor the Senate's reports. But if Feinstein truly believed it mattered, she would find the courage of a whistleblower and take her chances with the Justice Department. The chances of Donald Trump releasing, or reading, the report seem slim but possible. If Obama really wanted to bury the report for good, he would leak it now and announce that Russians were responsible. Then it would be everyone's patriotic duty not to report on or look at it. Debbie Wasserman who? But our public interest, having paid for the report, not to mention the torture, is in immediate disclosure without shenanigans. Go to rootsaction.org to sign a petition to both President Obama and Senator Feinstein. Not long after this petition was launched, demanding that Obama release the report, he announced that he would protect it from feared destruction by keeping it secret for 12 years or more. A much surer way to protect it from destruction would be to make it public. It's been four years since the Senate Intelligence Committee produced this 7,000-page report. It's hard enough for a 7,000-page document to go up against myths, lies, and Hollywood movies, but it's a truly unfair fight when the document is kept secret. Only a 500-page censored summary was released two years ago. NPR's David Wellner recently reported on this topic in a manner typical of the U.S. media, saying, President-elect Trump campaigned on bringing back torture, which was outlawed during the Obama administration. In fact, torture was outlawed by, among other laws, the Eighth Amendment, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the Convention Against Torture, joined by the U.S. during the Reagan administration, and the anti-torture and war crimes statutes in the U.S. Code since the Clinton administration. Torture was a felony throughout the period of time covered by the torture report. President Obama forbade prosecution, although the Convention Against Torture requires it. The rule of law has suffered. 
but some measure of truth and reconciliation remains possible if we are allowed to know the truth, or rather if we are allowed to have the truth reconfirmed in an authoritative document guaranteed to be taken seriously. If we are denied the truth about torture, lies will continue to justify it, and it will continue to claim victims, as does every other tool of war. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.